This, this text challenged me as I was meditating on it. Because we, we, we tend to look at safety and protection more in physical terms, but yet Jesus, he looks at safety and protection far more transcendently. It's more eternal, more spiritual in nature, because if you define it narrowly through the physical implications of safety and protection, then this doesn't even make any sense. So that being said, I'm here to encourage you. To to encourage you, to build you up. The people of God in this current age need encouragement with the truth. The people of God need encouragement, even though some things may seem to be unraveling or spinning out of control. And we need to be reminded that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And we need to be reminded that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever for a reason. Why does the steadfast love of the Lord endure forever? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8. So, let's shoot the Romans 8. Now, I'll tell you, while we're, while we're going there, uh, at the Rockaway Church, we don't do a lot of bouncing around like this. It's kind of an exception to the rule, but before we get to Psalm 44, I like the New Testament to kind of sh- shed some, some brighter light on the Old Testament text, so that's all I'm doing. We preach through books of the Bible. I know you guys do here as well. But uh, uh, again, uh, Romans 8, I'll begin reading at verse 31. You'll see why we took this meandering course on our way to the psalm. So Romans 8, in verse 31. I'll read down to 35. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? We'll pause for a sec. What things? Well, we didn't read it, but just to bring us up to, to speed, all the previous verses, that God is conforming a people into the image of His Son. That, that's the, the being foreknown, the predestined, the called, the justified, the glorified. What are we going to say to all that? That's what he's saying. Now look at the middle of verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? It's it's as if he has to force himself to stop. This almost is becoming an exhausting list of things that cannot separate you from the love of God. So in this current season of fear and rising oppression from governments globally, division within many churches, the rise of more vitriolic responses toward the church, Christian, you need to hear this. What will separate you from the love of God. Beloved, what's the implied answer? Nothing. No one. But also, and I have to remind myself of this often, do not define the love of God 
by your circumstances. Do not define the love of God by your circumstances. You define God's love for you as a follower of Jesus Christ by Christ's death for you, and that he was raised, and he's still interceding for you. That's how you define the love of God for you. See, the difficulties that we experience in our lives are there to show you that you cannot be separated from the love of God. Do you understand difficulty like that? It's there to show you that you cannot be separated from the love of Christ. Many of you have been through difficult circumstances, and where are you at right now? You're in the assembly of the saints listening to God's word right now. So see, you've just made my point. Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. And because of this, Paul says in verse 36, look at verse 36 of Romans 8, or excuse me, of, uh, yeah, Romans 8. For as it is written, so he's quoting the Old Testament now, for your sake, We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a quote from Psalm 44. Now, this is so needed and profitable for us in our day right now. This is so, you know, potentially a 3,000-year-old psalm. Psalms were written over a bit of a period of time, but potentially a 3,000-year-old psalm relevant for today. So let's go back to Psalm 44. We'll spend the bulk of our time there uh, in the Word this morning. Let's take a closer look at it. So while you're flipping there, with regarding to authorship, we do not know who wrote Psalm 44. There's some speculations, but we do not know who wrote it. Uh, but uh, some of these things will be apparent as we go through it here as a church family. But uh, take note of this. He cries out to God in his faith. And it's a personal faith. You'll see that in the text because he's speaking in first-person singular pronouns. But he also identifies with the people of God corporately because he also speaks using plural pronouns. Like I said, you'll, you'll notice that as we go through this psalm. So it's also profitable for the church when we assemble. It's good for us to hear this corporately and worship in the psalms. So with that being said, let's, uh, let's dive right in, and let's, uh, let's hear the word of the living God. Um, if you're a note taker, I got three points for you, uh, but here's our first one. Uh, number one, the deeds. Psalm 44, 1, I'll read down to verse 8. <clears throat> o God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. 
but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. So the psalmist begins by remembering back to the testimony of his ancestors, referring to them in the common Jewish manner simply as fathers. And what was the testimony of the fathers? Well, if you look, it's a summary of the power of God. He, he speaks of the, God, the, the deeds that God had performed. And what was that? Psalm 44.2 says, You with your own hand drove out the nations. Remember Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Pause for a moment. Is that your view of God? Is that your view of God? And is your view of God consistent with what the Bible says about God? Or does your belief in him carry many numerous uh, caveats? For example, to say that God is sovereign, except here or there, is, is a manifest contradiction. Either he is sovereign overall, or he is not sovereign at all. Notice the deeds of God the psalmist proclaims. Let's look at them again briefly. Verse 2, he says God drove out the nations, referring to the Canaanites. Yet he planted the Jewish fathers in their place. And notice also he says God afflicted the peoples, now referring to the Egyptians, but he set free the nation of Israel. So the inspired testimony of the psalmist is that God is sovereign over affliction and also sovereign over people's freedom. Remember Amos 3.6 that says, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And the psalmist trusting God doesn't rely on his tools or his tactics, humanly speaking, but in God and his ability to work. His ability to move. That's what verse 3 is telling us. Which is why he immediately moves into verse 4 and says, You are my king, O God. A key component. A key component to humble submission within the kingdom of God is a right view of who he is and what he does. Let me say that again. A key component to humble submission within the kingdom of God is a right view of who he is and what he does. Because when this is developed, when this is cultivated, when there is heart submission to the Lord, what you trust in changes. Look at verse 6 again. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. So let me ask, during this current season of unrest, think in your mind just for a moment about the last year and a half. 
significant change, right, globally. Significant change globally, significant change for us as individuals. During this current season of unrest, think of all of those things that are going through your mind right now. Cultural division. Sickness. Changes in policies. What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Because trusting in what makes sense can often be expressions of unbelief. I think the people of God are far too practical at times, me being one of them. Trusting in what makes sense can often be expressions of unbelief. Because remember, look what the psalmist say. I don't trust in my weapons when I'm going to war. <laughs> Sounds foolish, doesn't it? Beloved, just a cautionary note. Don't be quick to indulge in American pragmatism or logic, because remember, the people of God are peculiar people who, because of the Holy Spirit, often function in a way that does not make sense to an unbelieving world. Because when you're trusting God, no matter the outcome, notice the gratitude that results. This is what we thirst for as Christians. Look at verse 8 again. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Don't forget the context of Psalm 44 that he says this. No matter what's going on in the world today, this is the joyful response of God's people, and that will often confuse an unbelieving world. Are you cultivating that gratitude? Stirring in your own heart as you pursue Jesus Christ, are you cultivating that gratitude? Or, over the last 18 months, have you grumbled or complained about various politicians? Too many COVID restrictions? Not enough COVID restrictions? Have you grumbled against other Christians that disagree with you in these matters? Because if gratitude is the joyful response of the people of God, no matter what God is doing, that may confuse people, and it may even confuse us. Let's look at uh, verse 9. Here's our next point. Number two, the discipline. Look at verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter and have gathered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors and derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me. And my shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. So I'll stop right there. So first, just it must be noted that this psalm is just like all the other psalms in that it's fashioned by divine inspiration to be lifted up 
by the people of God, toward God. And isn't it interesting? All of this praise is telling God things that he already knows. You ever thought about that? You're saying things that God already knows. And I submit to you that God being glorified and praised by us in truth brings us the highest level of joy. We're not adding anything that God is somehow deficient in. It brings us joy. Remember, it was Jesus in John 4 with the woman at the well. The Father seeks those to worship him in spirit and in what? Truth. Yes. And notice this psalm. I have to take a rabbit trail here because this is relevant for us because we see this garbage on our televisions. This psalm flies in the face of the American prosperity gospel. You know, I mean, it's, and that's not a gospel at all, by the way. That's a contradiction, because gospel means good news. And the American prosperity gospel is not good news. It's terrible news. So if you're not familiar with what the American prosperity gospel teaches, here's what they essentially believe, more or less. That if you just have enough faith, just have enough faith, or a strong enough faith, things will go well for you. Right? You'll never have any difficulties. You'll be healthy. Your circumstances will be favorable. You'll be healed from physical infirmities. You'll have plenty of money. You know, that, that, that sort of thing. And the problem I have with that is some of the most godly people I've ever met and guarantee that you all have ever met lack these things. The people in the Scripture, many in the Scripture, lacked All of those things. Teaching people that your faith is directly tied to things like that is deception. It is deception. It puts your focus where moth and rust destroy. Why would you put your focus there when Jesus tells you not to do that? It puts your focus where moth and rust destroy rather than on Christ himself. We are to behold him who gave his life a ransom for many. To pay the debt for our sin, we behold him who was raised from the dead. We don't behold the things where the world puts their trust. It's a fool's errand. Because if you do, how do verses 9 to 16 make any sense? The psalmist is praising God and boasting in God and trusting in God, and yet God's response to them seems confusing. Rejection. We just read it. Sold for a trifle, made a taunt, a byword, a laughingstock even. If one believes that their faith in Jesus Christ is primarily cause and effect. In other words, God is faithful to me because I'm faithful to him. Or, if I believe in him, things will go well for me. Then I say with all due respect, you will not rejoice in God's salvation that is by grace. Notice verse 17. Look at verse 17. This is important. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. (laughs) Beloved, this is a massive hinge the door of Psalm 44 swings on. 
Did you see what the psalmist just said there? All this has happened to us, though we have not been false to your covenant. So let's boil this down. There was faithfulness on the part of the people of God. Faithfulness. And what was the result? Difficulty. Hardship. Being made a mockery by your enemies. None of that has stopped. You know, this makes the Christian faith appear as a miracle. Because it is. Why would you put your faith in Jesus Christ if this is what you're going to have to deal with? Many of you, and I don't know most of you, Lord willing, that will change. Many of you have experienced severe hardships. I know it. None of us escape those things. Many of us have experienced experienced severe hardships. Some of you even have had a renewing. You go, you come out of the season of difficulty and darkness, and you have this renewing of an orientation towards Jesus Christ, and you set your heart to be more diligent to Jesus. And what was the result? Things got worse. Right? (laughs) Beloved, you are no different than this psalmist. You are living biblical faith. Think of the Apostle Paul. Things are going well. You know, he's, he's got all the approval of his contemporaries when he was identified as Saul of Tarsus, right? He's running around taking care of this Christian sect this, that's corrupting the, the true expression of faith in God. And then God shows up, remember? Wrecks his life on the Damascus Road. And he says to Ananias, he, he's a chosen vessel of mine, and he will see how much he must suffer for my name's sake. He meets Jesus as suffering from there on out. That's a, that's a Christian principle, not just a Paul principle. And remember, when he's out on his missionary journey, and he wants to take the gospel into Asia, and the Holy Spirit says, no, you're not going to go there, and then he gets the Macedonian vision, and he concludes, rightly, hey, we've got to go over to Macedonia, we've got to preach the gospel there. So they get on a boat, and almost the minute... His foot hits Macedonian dirt. What happens? He's beaten and thrown into a Philippian prison for obeying God, for following his leading. But remember, he's singing in the inner prison. Remember, beloved, Paul is a great example, but remember, remember the perfect man the Lord Jesus Christ, who obeyed his heavenly Father perfectly, was tortured and killed for it. God has been undoing, since the day of my conversion, how I think about these things. Because I'm no different than anybody else. It's often with tears in our eyes, and our knees are skinned, and we hurt too much to get up. That our, our faith in that moment becomes what it never has been to that day. We cannot know what will befall us in our day-to-day. We don't know. But what we can do is this. We can posture ourselves in a godly way with conviction, 
and set our face like flint and go, Lord, by your grace, not by my power, but by your grace, I'm fixed with this conviction. Help. We can do that. And here's our last point this morning. Number three, the dedicated. Look at verse 18. I'll read down to 25. Psalm 44, 18. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. So the difference between the people of God and the godless who surround us, of which we were once were, the only difference is that the people, well, the people of God never uh, are exempt from uh, not having hardship in our lives. We, everybody experiences hardship. The only difference is how we respond to it in the midst of it and who we trust no matter what. That's the difference. So, let's get practical. If this is a fixed reality that everybody deals with suffering and difficulty and hardship, what do we do? First off, be diligent in prayer. Notice that the psalmist is praying. This is God's songbook, the Psalms. He's praying worship to God. These are prayers that he's lifting up. Be diligent in prayer. Sometimes your prayers will sound like this. Lord, help Like, let's not be overly pious when we're bleeding, sometimes physically, sometimes metaphorically. Lord, help. Be diligent in prayer. Remember the prophet Jeremiah, he says, and I'll just read this, Jeremiah 12.1, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? And why do all who are treacherous thrive? You know, I I think that prayer of Jeremiah is maybe a bit too honest for most of us. It is for me. I struggle with stuff like this. He's wondering, why do godless people flourish? They never seem to experience difficulty. We tell ourselves that's not true. And, And he asks why to God. It's not a bad thing to ask why before God, but he does not ascribe God being unfair or unrighteous. He says, righteous are you, O Lord, but now I'm going to complain. Why is this happening? So for us, things often seem to be going better outside the church. What do we do with that? Well, I can tell you what we don't do is we don't grumble, we don't complain, we don't vent on social media. There's a lot of people you don't know are, walk, are seeing your testimony in that. We don't do that. Rather, be 
prayerful. Confess your lack of contentment to God. Remember, we tell things that God already knows. Confess your lack of contentment to God. Confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to one another. It's an incredible burden off your back. And pour your hearts out to the living God. Again, remember the context of this psalm. And after all, remember verse 21. It says, he knows the secrets of the heart. So being prayerful is important, but also authentic fellowship is important. Remember the corporate nature of this psalm. We need to wrap our minds around this biblical truth, and then I'll begin to close out here. Brace yourselves. We were brought to faith in order to experience difficulty. That, that probably falls on our ears kind of strange, does it not? We, we were brought to faith in order to experience difficulty. God has purposed this for his people. Where do I get that idea? Well, Psalm 44.22, which is why the Apostle Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 8. Let's read Psalm 44.22 again. For your sake. So why? For your sake. We are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is a God-centered, God-glorifying reason for our existence. And it's completely countercultural. You see how strange the church is compared to the people of the world? This is completely countercultural, and it increases our faith in God as we cry out to Him in our midst of our difficulties. I'll read it quickly. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, Dan and I have discussed this at length, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So did you get all that? I was summarized. He was utterly burdened. He was despairing of life. The fear of death was to increase his faith. Trusting in yourself is one of the most dangerous things we can do. Because that's what Paul's saying there. Trusting in yourself is one of the most dangerous things people can do. Every time I hear, you know, just believe in yourself. You can do it. I want to say, get thee behind me, Satan, because that is not what you need to hear. Often you will be weakened in order that you would trust God who raises the dead, not yourself. Now, I'm not going to be presumptuous, so I I could uh, speak for God on this matter, but just maybe, just maybe, God allowed a worldwide pandemic that people would have the fear of death and stop trusting themselves and trust in him who raises the dead. We have to look at things from God's perspective, eternally, transcendently. 
Is that not applicable for us in our day? Don't trust yourself. Trust Him. So let's, I'll close out here with Psalm 44, 26. Let's read it together. The psalmist says, Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Beloved, would, would there be any cry for help from us if we weren't placed in circumstances that demanded that response? I heard a pastor say one time, how can God be the great comforter if we refuse to be uncomfortable? Why else would we cry out in our need for God with this heightened awareness of his steadfast love and our need for it if we weren't placed in those circumstances to begin with? If Jesus Christ went to the cross to remove all the wrath so that only grace and mercy and love remain, then everything is for our good. Everything serves to draw us nearer to our blessed Lord. Every bit of it. I'll leave you with the last verse of an old hymn. I'm sure some of you have heard this or have sung it. Draw Me Near by Fanny Crosby. I think she wrote it in 1875. last verse says this, There are depths of love that I cannot know till I cross the narrow sea. There are heights of joy that I may not reach till I rest in peace with thee. Until then, beloved, stand firm, cultivating affections for Christ. Stand firm in your obedience to him and confession to him when you're not. Stand firm in him. Because regardless of what happens to each one of you, regardless Remember, not a hair of your head will perish. And who will separate you from the love of Christ? No one. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for the truth of your word to establish us in a rejoicing affection for your Son. Thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. And Lord, I ask that people would not hear the voice of a man, but that your word, as transformative as it is, in its power, in its strength, applied through your spirit and by your grace, would change us and renew our minds, that the church would be steadfast and that Christ would be magnified. Help us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.